We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with built environment professionals about empathetic projects with really challenging briefs and how they approach the design of building typologies that are politically or ethically charged. Our guest in this episode is Scott Verdow from Jaws Architects based in Tasmania. Scott is a registered architect and has practiced architecture in Tasmania and Europe, with much of Scott's work being located in remote places that require sensitive responses and minimal impact. Scott shares how they approach accepting sensitive commissions from their clients, what JAWS went through working on the public accommodation huts on the Three Capes track in the Tasman Peninsula National Park, and how the discussion and debate that takes place during a contentious project is part of a healthy design process. I'll now hand over to Abby Hibbard, who is an Imagine representative based in Tasmania. Let's jump in. G'day, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast today. How are you going? Hi, Abby. Really good, thanks, and thanks for having me. So we're here today to talk about your experience with empathetic architecture and what that might mean to you. So can you maybe start by describing for us what this term means in your book and perhaps what an idea of a project being taboo in some way, what that means or can look like in this field of work? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, look, empathetic architecture is a really good topic to talk about, I think, and it's probably something that we as architects should keep at the forefront of our mind. Essentially, perhaps more than any other profession, we're, we're shaping the environment around us and we're manipulating this, the, the place that we're in. So we're really imposing our ideas on so many other people and everybody sees things in different ways. So what we're doing is going to be taboo to quite a number of people around us and that can be a little bit confronting as a designer but if we don't confront it I I think we're doing the community a disservice because we're not really improving or, or making a difference in the lives of those around us. So to me really trying to get an understanding of empathy in design is yeah, it's a really important aspect of what we do. Mm-hmm. And before we touch on specific projects, can you speak to how you would tackle receiving a project brief in this space and maybe what mindset you'd bring to it? You know, so in your practice experience, how do or should architects approach the design of a building typology that might be politically or ethically charged, so? Yeah, so I've been practising as an architect for a little bit over 20 years now, so... Over that time, I guess we've had a a very broad range of projects come across the office. We don't accept all of the commissions. Some of them we think, yeah, this doesn't tick the ethical boxes. We really try hard to get an idea of whether a project will get social licence as well. So we, we do have filters that we work through. I guess we try and get out of our own comfort zone a little bit as well and try and sort of test the brief and the ideas that might come out of it 
and understand whether or not that's going to be a positive or a negative impact on the environment around us. We're also aware that we're running a practice. We, we have quite a number of architects here we need to feed. So if we're going to say no to a project, we're going to have to really think hard about that as well because we, we do need to make sure that the people here uh, have a job. So there's a little bit of conflict sometimes where, yeah, we, we have to keep working, but we also want to make sure that we're making a positive difference in the place that we're working. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess, do you feel some kind of responsibility to get involved in these types of projects so that as architects we can influence the discussion? Yes, yeah, definitely. And I think if we look around us, I think as architects we've got quite a keen eye on what happens and sometimes you see things that you think, how could that have possibly been done? It's really ruined an opportunity which would have been a lot better. And I think that we probably you know, want to have the best possible outcome. And if we turn down a job, what's going to happen? Is the job going to still go ahead? Mm-hmm. And if it is, uh, is it going to be done as well as we could possibly think that it should be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, a very apt project to firstly talk about then, I think, would be the work you as JAWS Architects have done in the National Park space in Tasmania. So JAWS were awarded the commission to design the public accommodation huts for the Three Capes track on the Tasman Peninsula a fair few years ago now. Can you tell us a bit about how that project presented itself and who the key stakeholders were? Yeah, sure. Look, that's, a, that's probably a good project to bring up uh, for this particular topic. You know, if we're talking about taboo architecture, that probably comes up in the forefront of some people's minds uh, because doing work in national parks uh, for some is... Yeah, definitely a taboo area and it shouldn't happen. So uh, some time ago, the state government was looking to look at employment opportunities on the Tasman Peninsula. It's an area of great need. And uh, the National Park down on Tasman Peninsula was seen as a good opportunity to produce a really key walk for Tasmania. And when the expressions of interest came out, we looked at the information that came out with that brief to see if it was something which we could get behind. So the the process that we went through for that was to really think about the benefits overall for the society that we're in. Development in national parks is not something that's necessarily new. When national parks were set up sort of 100 years ago, they were really designed to allow people to experience the places that they're in and protect those places as well. So could that be done if you're actually developing in a national park? Mm -hmm. And we thought that's a really good thing to try and explore, to see how we might be able to meet those two sort of conflicting things, to bring people in but also not to destroy the nature that we're trying to protect. Mm. And I imagine there would have been market research undertaken to deem, you know, that project suitable. Yes, yeah. Look, there, there was a lot of background information. There'd been a lot of environmental surveys, uh, looking at eagles nests and other things in there. The, the park itself was an interesting one because before European settlement, the land was quite manipulated through fire, not fire. So a lot of it was grasslands a couple of hundred years ago. Since then it had been used fairly extensively for grazing, but a lot of the 
area has, has sort of grown back and some of those sort of button grass plains have been lost over time to forest. So it had, had already been used quite extensively by people for thousands of years essentially. Mm -hmm. So it already had some walks there, so people were using it as a area for recreation, but also it's a beautiful place, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of draw cards. Mm. Yeah, so you've started to set the scene a bit of the site, but can you speak more to the significance of the landscape and then how that informed the brief and design process and thinking? Sure. So anyone who knows the Tasman Peninsula, it's quite a dramatic landscape. Uh, it's, it's a peninsula, but there's some amazing cliffs along there, some, some capes, fantastic views through forest and open plains, and it's a very varying landscape. So fantastic place for a, a walk, essentially. There were some areas for camping already out there. Parks had already scoped out a, a walking track and some broad areas for uh, some huts. Their brief, I suppose, had uh, drawn from other examples from New Zealand, essentially, and we were able to look at that brief and put uh, a different slant on it, I suppose, and try and look at how we might be able to pull the buildings apart, essentially, to make them more easily inserted into the landscape around existing features. Mm -hmm. The sites were very carefully chosen, um, so there was a lot of work done beforehand on making sure that they were put in areas that would not disturb the existing ecosystems as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And then the designs were undertaken to be removed as easily as they were put in. So basically they flat packed on the way in and then they could be disassembled and flat packed on the way out just as easily. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the full life cycle, if you look at it over a long time frame, this is only a temporary structure really, even if it's there for 70 years. Mm. And I guess the remoteness of the site and logistical constraints would have played into that you know, design approach? Absolutely. So we wanted to strip out everything that we possibly could that wasn't necessary. And it was a really interesting process that we followed to do that. So every design decision, we ran past a bit of a filter of, it needs to be both elegant and simple. So uh, the designs needed to be beautiful, but they needed to be simple. So if there was anything that isn't necessary to achieve that, we, we wouldn't do it. So the buildings themselves, they're really quite small and they're really, you know, the, the materials and the pallets and the connections to the ground are, are, are minimised as much as possible. And I think that's worked really quite successfully and I think a lot of the visitors who go out there are quite, yeah, they find it a, a real relief that all of the, I guess, clutter of their lives are just stripped right away mm -hmm. and they're brought right back down to basics. And they're really quite small. So per person, I think the floor area is, yeah, less than nine square metres of, mm -hmm. of building area. So if you compare that to the average Australian house, which is 233 square metres and that our households are getting smaller, mm -hmm. they're really tight, but they provide everything that you possibly need out there. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's allowed us to challenge 
people as well to sort of see what they really do and don't need. Mm-hmm. And did accessibility play a big part of the brief as well? It did, it did. So one of the criticisms that we got from certain segments of society was you don't want to do anything out in national parks that make it easier. I think that that can be just a little bit exclusive because, sure, if you're a really hardcore walker and you're able-bodied and you've got the experience and the skill and the knowledge to get out there, you can experience it and no one else can. Mm. I'd challenge that and say that for people who perhaps can't experience it in that way, to be able to say, sorry, but you're not allowed out there is a little bit exclusive. So we wanted to open up the hearts to as many people perhaps who have visible visual disabilities and other limitations that would not otherwise be able to get out there to make sure that they can. In some segments we couldn't achieve that. If you were wheelchair bound, for example, we couldn't quite cater for that. But every other aspect of, I guess, a level of ability we, we tried to do that. So if you've got visual impairment and even ambulant impairment, they're able to experience this walk. So we've got people going out there in their 80s and even their 90s in some cases, and people with you know uh, visual impairment are able to use it. So we're able to incorporate those into these buildings. So a broad spectrum of society is able to experience these amazing places mm-hmm. that some of us take for granted. Yeah, and, and as such a significant, amazing place, you've touched on, you know, potential pushback that you've received and there would have expectedly been some contrasting views on this kind of project. So what did that consultative part of the process reveal and what kinds of other challenges mm. did you face with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. It can actually be quite confronting, I find. I think, personally, I, I don't like to displease people Mm -hmm. and you really want to try and keep everybody happy if you can but certain segments really strongly resist any development whatsoever in national parks and I understand that the wilderness is something that is precious and and should be should be protected that needs to be balanced I think against exclusivity so making it just exclusive to a few is perhaps not necessarily the way to go. It's not very empathetic, Mm -hmm. I find, and we're talking about empathetic architecture. So thinking about what it's like for someone who you're you're, you're saying, sorry, you can't get out here, you're just not able-bodied, it's just not for you, I think is not a really great way to think. So we copped a fair bit of flack along the way and that that was really hard but we stayed the course and I think once the building was finished I I think it was very very well accepted and I think some of the people who may have thought that they were losing something significant to them and that was making them very resistive found that at the end of the day they didn't actually lose as much as they thought that they did Mm -hmm. so a lot of that criticism went away once it was complete. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad we did stay the course and uh, stuck to our, I guess, ethical position in mm. this particular case. Yeah, I think you touched on it before that, you know, perhaps if you proposed anything, even just a track or something of a small scale, it, it still probably wouldn't get past particular groups in the community. So, you know, I think strategically looking at leaving no trace or sitting within the landscape lightly is probably mm. the way to go there. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think you'll ever 
please everyone. And I think that's okay. Mm. And I think in a, a healthy society, um, I think all of us understand that we're going to be different and we're going to have different opinions, but being able to respect that is really important. Mm-hmm. So looking at the project practicalities more closely then, I imagine there would have been other code compliance challenges to work with uh, in such a unique place? Mm. Well, being in a national park, you want to leave absolutely no trace. So apart from all of the environmental assessments and really careful siting of the buildings, making sure that you're limiting any damage whatsoever. So all of the buildings and all of the circulation around the buildings are off the ground. So the footprint is as small as we could possibly make it. There are 48 people accommodated at these sites, which sounds like a lot, but if we can get them outside as much as possible, it means that the inside area can be quite small. So we do have quite a bit of covered outdoor area and quite a bit of deck space, but that keeps people off the landscape, which is really important. Mm -hmm. It's off the grid, of course, so we use minimal power There's only lighting in sort of the communal spaces. Bedrooms don't have lighting. All of the solid waste is taken away. So they're in pods and then flown out uh, and nothing's left on site. We spend a lot of time working through the services of this particular building and working out how we can limit the usage but also make it an educational opportunity. So one of the things that are really precious out in this place is water and limiting the amount of water. So instead of using, say, taps, we used hand pumps. So for someone to get water, they actually had to make an effort and it became a very conscious thing. So that we, we actually specified hand pumps and they're the sort of pumps that kids use in outdoor playgrounds for sort of playing. So, and it's a very playful sort of interpretation of how you, how you get water. You actually have to pump it out. And that works really successfully. Mm. And in terms of the building code, uh, how was how it classified and how, mm. you know, what kind of dispensations did you have to potentially look at there? Yeah, well, one of the challenges, I think, for architects is we're governed by regulation. And sometimes that can be really frustrating and restrictive because... They don't look at every single case. Under the building code, there's no classification for a hut out in the middle of the bush. Mm -hmm. And the closest classification they've got is a hotel. And this isn't a hotel. Hotels are, you know, uh, really very restrictive. You've got exit signs all over the place and you've got fire separation between apartments and acoustic separation. So all of that from a construction point of view takes a lot of extra materials and it makes it feel very much like like a hotel, which is the last thing we wanted out there. This is very much a shelter. Mm-hmm. So the way we managed to uh, reinterpret, I guess, the building code is to treat it more like a house with a number of bedrooms. So it reads very much like a large house, but the rooms and the bedrooms don't open onto a living space, they open out onto a deck. And that way we were able to I guess cut out some of the acoustic and fire separation issues. The other interesting change out there was for uh, accessibility. Under the building code, you're required to make everything wheelchair accessible, of course, but because you can't get wheelchairs out there, it didn't make any sense. 
and the restrictions for the extra area for door openings and things would have made for a much larger building than what it needed to be. So we did use an access consultant to help us through that. We did design for visual impairment and also ambulant impairment, but wheelchair accessibility we were able to get some performance solutions to be able to make it a little more practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind of key areas we worked on. Mm-hmm. And how about fire rating? I understand that these huts may be used as shelters. That's right. So bushfire is another area which is really important to consider because the last thing we want to do is do a massive clearing, which is what would normally be required. So we designed them so that they had the communal dining area is in the middle of the sites and that's designed to be a bushfire shelter. So people would gather in that communal area and then that required a clearance around it. And then the other buildings, if we keep them six metres away, they can be sacrificial. So in the case of the fire, we could really reduce the, the fire clearance by a significant amount. So you, you can't really tell that there's clearing, essentially. Hmm. So upon completion of the project, and perhaps on reflection looking back now, how do you think the outcome fit the initial brief and did it settle in or challenge community expectations the way you thought it would? And, you know, were there any other key learnings that you can take into other work? Sure. So I think at the end of the job, we found it to be even more successful than we hoped it would be. And I think for the climb um, and for national parks, it's been a real benchmark project for them. They do see it as, I guess, a key example of how a project like this can can work in in a remote area. I think the community has come on board since uh, and it's really settled in quite well. I don't think it's taken away as much as what people have expected and we learned a lot along the way. I think we've had to invent the model a little bit and that's forced us to go back to first principles of design. It's not a typology which is common and that you can basically take from from other areas, you, you've really got to test every decision that you make. That's That's been a great learning experience for the whole office, really. Mm. I think I remember from previous discussions, you spoke about having worked in kind of modular mm. project space before, and um, so potentially you already had a knowledge base of how to simplify trades and build quicker and more cost-effectively. So. Yeah, look, I I think on this particular topic of empathetic architecture, we set up our modular housing, I guess, to try and fill a gap. We found that a lot of the work that we were doing for it was for wealthy patrons, really, so that only people that could afford architect-designed houses were people who had significant amounts of money. And we found that people who didn't have money had very few options. They could go to a housing company who perhaps don't have any experience in design and the outcomes were generally pretty poor. So we developed a modular housing range which used really low cost construction techniques and minimised the amount of wastage of materials by using full modules. It was on a 1200 module grid which is to fit standard sheet sizes and 
yeah, design a series of modules that could be joined together and trucked to site. And look, they, they worked fantastically and some of the builders that did it, they said one of the great things about it is at the end of the job, the skip bin was nearly empty mm. because a lot of those materials that you pay for, they wind up in the skip bin because you've got lots and lots of offcuts. So we could reduce that significantly. So it was a very efficient way of constructing and by doing most of the work in the factory meant that we could control the quality much, much better. And I think that was one of the reasons why we uh, got the job in the first place was that we were able to demonstrate an appreciation for innovation in that space. And yeah, we think that it's got a lot of opportunities if it's done really well. Mm. So just to sidestep a little now, there's another area of work that I know you've had some involvement with that we could potentially draw some similar parallels from, and that space is densification in an urban context, so more specifically medium to higher rise buildings in the city of Hobart. It's often a point of contention in broader community discussion, and I'm sure everyone has their their own view on it, but to tie in some of the ideas that we've been talking about can you speak to the similar politically or ethically charged nature generally of, of projects you've had experience with here in Hobart? Sure, and, and this is really a very charged discussion, I think, in Hobart, which I think is great. I think debate and ideas and, and considering these things really should be talked about rather than just swept under the carpet. So we have done some larger, taller buildings. I think one of the taller ones in recent years is a hotel that we've recently completed in the CBD. There's really two sides of the fence and there's very few in the middle. So you've got, say, the property council on one side saying that we need more densification and more height, otherwise it just becomes unviable to do anything in Hobart and the city's going to die. And then you've got the other side of the fence, which is, you know, Hobart, not high-rise, which have a very keen appreciation for Hobart's heritage and the way things are at the moment and if there is densification let's pull it out of the city and put it somewhere else and those two really meet there's a real clash somewhere in the middle and when we are approached by a client we sort of need to test the site that they've got and look at the opportunities there Hobart itself has a real need for housing especially if we don't provide that housing it's going to limit the growth. You know, people who provide services, they need housing, and there's a real shortage and a real lack, and it's one of the biggest challenges that our city has going forward. So you really have two options. You can either go up or you can spread out. So which of those two options is the most ethical way forward and the best for the city? Mm. And probably it's a little bit of both. It's, it's going to happen either up or it's going to happen out. So I think when we design and we work with schemes, we work very much looking at plans and uh, the list map and other things which provide boundaries. On one side of the boundary, the height limit's 15 metres. On the other side of the boundary, it's 45. What, What makes that change? So we like absolutes. We love it but it's not necessarily the best way to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to be able to really test what's actually best for the place that we're in is something that we try and do. And we're happy to push the boundaries and 
open up the debate on that. And the good thing about our society is there's good checks and balances. So if you do put an idea forward and it's not a great idea, it does get shot down pretty quickly. <laughs> and that's fine. Sometimes you're better off putting the idea out there to open up the discussion so that people start to think, well, why do we think that way? Mm-hmm. And if we disagree with the way they think, it's sometimes good to challenge it. Yeah, and, ha- and what kind of external or contextual things did you draw upon in those processes? I mean, are there consultants that have been identified you know, by the Hobart yeah. City Council to work with closely on those? Yeah, look, we prefer to open the dialogue early, early on any project that we do. So, yeah, recently we've, we've done some multi-res developments in, in the CBD, which are in the uh, performance height limits and above the acceptable height limits, where we think that density is actually going to help the city. It's going to mean that we can house more people and we're not going to reduce the amenity of the area around us. In some cases, we've really looked closely at the Building Height Standards Review from Lee Woolley, which I think is a fantastic document because it yeah, it looks at height from... I guess, an urban planning perspective and and not really just lines on a page. So it takes a broader look at how we should consider density in the city. And we've consulted directly with Lee on a couple of occasions where we've wanted to get a better interpretation of some of the thoughts behind what he's worked on. We've worked closely with uh, the Urban uh, UDAP, the Urban Design Advisory Panel, to get their opinion early in the piece as well, sometimes earlier than what's required. Consultation, really, really useful, really important. It was interesting, I worked for a couple of years in uh, the Netherlands, and that's a country that over centuries has had to grapple with planning because it's a fairly constructed country. They reclaimed a lot of land, they built dikes and fields and other things and they could establish the height. So they'll have the farmer on one side and what's this height, farmer on the other side. They're used to debating. So when a development is done in that country, the whole town comes out and comments. Everyone gets to say. And I think it was a really fantastic process and I think we're going to learn a lot from it. I think here we work in silos. Everybody's really looking out for their own backyard, what's best for them as an individual without really discussing it in consideration of what the neighbours might think. So I think the moral of the story that I'm hearing is that, you know, you're going to be hit with different views and polarising ideologies that might not fit and you can't really please everyone. And maybe if you try to meet everyone's needs, it'll turn into something that's washed out and doesn't really achieve anything. Would you agree? I, I definitely agree with that. And I think... We've got to take our responsibility as designers seriously that we do that we are shaping the environment for the people around us. And it might sound arrogant to say that we know better than the people that we're designing for, but we should. We actually should. And we should be brave enough, I guess, to challenge the status quo sometimes and to put ideas forward which might be challenging. Sometimes it's better to, yeah, create that sort of discussion even if it's difficult for some. Mm. I think uh, over history and in places where that's occurred, there's been some amazing outcomes. Mm. To paraphrase you from an earlier discussion we have, it's good to be offended, I think, or challenged, 
and you know perhaps the best architecture is the one that you have an emotional response from people yeah yeah whether that's good or bad I think it's always good when people either love or hate your work it's not great when someone says yeah it's okay (laughs) (laughs) because then I think you've created an emotional response and people have reacted to the environment that they've experienced Mm. then I think we've done our job Well, it's very good of you to share some of your story, Scott. It is refreshing to hear of some very considered and empathetic approaches to some often politically taboo development topics. So keep up the important work and discussion, and I know I'll be interested to see what opportunities and hopefully great built outcomes this area of work will allow for in the near future in Tassie and further abroad. So thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And, yeah, there's some exciting things on the, on the horizon, and we'll see what comments come out here. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Scott Verdow from Jaws Architects. Thank you so much for sharing your experience working on beautiful projects in sensitive landscapes. We can't wait to see your future projects built in Tasmania's stunning environment. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Abby Hibbard and Tim Blakeway. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.